0: Hey, it's Pastor Sam. I want to take a minute to thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. I pray that it blesses you and ultimately it'll point you to Jesus. The audio comes from a sermon series called Gospel Trifecta, looking at the DNA of Sacred City Church, gospel, community, and mission. Or in other words, we're talking about the gospel message, the kind of people it creates, and how the gospel advances in our city and far beyond. We really hope that you would think about joining us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. Otherwise, you can find us on Facebook and on YouTube for our live stream each Sunday. For more information, you can visit scmoline.com.
1: Hear the word of the Lord from Acts 2, 1 through 41. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks, Carrie. Uh, we have wrapped up a sermon series called Practicing the Way of Jesus. We spent about 34, 35 weeks going through the Sermon on the Mount, and today we begin a new sermon series, short sermon series. Um, here in the, It's sort of a stopgap until our next sermon series uh, going through the book of Ephesians. I'm really looking forward to that. This sermon series that we kick off today, we're calling Gospel Trifecta. What we're doing, we're honing in on the three distinctives, the three non-negotiable characteristics of Sacred City Church that make us who we are. Everything that we do at Sacred City rides and falls on these three pillars, right? If you you take one of these things away from us, Sacred City Church will collapse and cease to be what it is. And this is the gospel trifecta we say. Our DNA at Sacred City Church is this. Gospel, community, and mission, those three things. Gospel, community, mission. The only way to make disciples, the only way to grow in the gospel is in community and on mission. We always come back to these three things and now uh, we're we're having a little bit of a reset. like Just just to come back to, to do a little touch point here on the DNA of Sacred City Church to spend one week on each of these things and so we're gonna unpack this week the gospel message Next week we'll talk about the kind of people the gospel creates, and the week after that we'll talk about how the gospel advances throughout the world. So gospel, community, mission, and there's no better place in all of scripture to look and see these three things than the book of Acts. In fact, you could say the book of Acts is all about this stuff. It's the gospel message going out, changing, radically changing people's lives, and then them being sent back out to reach more and more people with the gospel message. In fact, that's where Sacred City gets our ideas, right? We, we borrowed it. We stole it from Scripture, which I think is okay, right, uh, to make ourselves all about gospel, community, mission because that's what we see the early church is all about. So as we jump in, because we're kind of just, we're just doing a real quick blip in the book of Acts. It's a really complicated book. There's a lot of stuff going on. Let me just do a quick setup so you understand the context of this book. The book of Acts is written by this guy named uh, Luke. He was a, a physician. He was meticulous in his um, his documentation of the life of Jesus, right, the the gospel of Luke is is where we get that. In fact, if you you go through a Bible reading plan, you're going to spend the most time in the book of Luke just because he pays so close attention to detail. He's always capturing these little things, which gives it some sort of historical context and gives some sort of proof to the fact like, hey, we're not just making up. There's like hard details that are attached to this. So in Luke's first book that he wrote, uh, he accounts all of Jesus' life. He talks about Jesus' life, his ministry, his his crucifixion, his death, and the fact that Jesus was killed and then God raised him from the dead. Um, He was resurrected and then Jesus is, in the last scene of Luke's gospel, Jesus ascends into heaven. Well, the book of Acts is like part two of this documentation because he's documenting the ministry of Jesus as he was here on earth. The book of Acts is documenting the ministry of Jesus as he sits in heaven. And he's working through his apostles through the church. And so we see the same sort of repetition going on here. The same patterns within Jesus' ministry being repeated in the ministry of church. As the gospel message is announced, the the kingdom of heaven advances. People are giving their lives to Jesus and trusting him. And and here we see, uh, at the beginning of Acts, this pre-ascended Jesus telling his disciples, I need you to stay here in Jerusalem. I'm gonna go up into heaven and when I get up into heaven, I'm gonna send you the helper, the Holy Spirit, who have promised you. Jesus has been promising this helper, right, the third member of the Trinity coming and actually living within every one of his followers and the Holy Spirit would empower them and help them to carry out the ministry that Jesus started. Now, this is where we start out here in chapter two. See, look, if you look at verses one, he says, on the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. They're talking about the apostles. And then suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled, all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them Utterance. So what we see here happening, there's like an indoor hurricane taking place. The, the disciples, they're chilling out. Jesus said, hey, lay low for a minute, chilling out. A hurricane happens, the, the, the house shakes, the spirit moves, descends, and now they start talking in foreign languages, right? And they're giving utterances, Now, if you're new to the church scene and you hear like speaking in tongues, maybe you've heard of this idea, but it's like, well, what is that? And even if you come from a conservative background, you know, speaking in tongues is something you hear talked about in the the New Testament, but it's, you know, not in the church today. So what does it mean exactly when they're talking in tongues? Now, Verses five through 13 give some sort of context here to what's going on, the speaking in tongues. At that particular moment in the city of Jerusalem, there were all kinds of people from different nationalities, different tribes, different countries, different languages, different cultures, like literally you have a, a diverse melting pot of all kinds of different foreigners and peoples, Jews and Gentiles from all over the place. Right? That's, that's why Carrie did such an extra job. It's like capturing all these different places where people were from. If you could bust out a map, you'd have pins spread across from everywhere. Everybody's drawn in here to Jerusalem for the celebration of Pentecost, which was actually um, a, a festival that was celebrated. Uh, I think it's the festival of weeks that would celebrate the harvest. And so here in Jerusalem, there's over 16 different people groups here. And the spirit is moving in the house in such a way that it spills over. All the commotion spills over from going in the house. They're out in the streets now. The spirits give them utterance. They're speaking in different languages that they didn't know beforehand. And these outsiders, these foreigners, hear the commotion. They come to check it out. And they, scripture says, they're bewildered by this. They're astonished by what they see. Because here they have a bunch of Galileans, mostly uneducated people, speaking with a vast lexicon. Somehow, supernaturally, they have gone, gained the ability to speak in foreign languages that prior to that moment, they had no clue how to speak at all. They see this, they're blown away, who are these Galilean you know, uneducated people talking in a foreign language, when did they get educated? And not only are they hearing them speak in a foreign language, they can actually hear. It. When they're listening to them speak, they hear the message that they're proclaiming, right? These utterances, they're proclaiming the mighty works of God that He has done. And they see this as crazy. The only logical explanation that these, these foreigners have for what's going on is oh, they must be drunk, right? They hit the booze early this morning, and uh, you know, it just, or maybe they didn't stop from last night, and they're just, they're just babbling. They're a bunch of babblers. But then Peter, the one who Jesus said, On you, Peter, I'm gonna build my church. You are the rock, I'm gonna build my church upon you. Peter stands up and begins providing clarification for what's going on. Now, you know that if I have to get up here on a Sunday morning and explain to people who are out here, like, hey guys, we're not drunk promise you know it's lit like something cool is happening and Peter gets up and says guys these people they're not drunk it's only 9 a.m. here's what's going on and he goes to the prophet Joel where there's this prophecy about the Holy Spirit being poured out upon all people on men and women older people younger people the Spirit poured out and they prophesy. And really what they're prophesying about, he, he captures this in, in the, uh, verse 21. This is what Joel says all the prophecies about. It's that they'll come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So it's not just that the Holy Spirit is being poured out and people are speaking in languages that they didn't know prior to that moment. They have a message of salvation. It says that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. They're saying, hey, this is the message of how you can be saved. And and guess what? Peter does. He, He makes this connection between the prophecy of Joel to what's going on in that moment. He says, you know what that name is? Anybody who calls upon the name of the Lord, guess what that name is? Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. See this this one, the, the name of the Lord who will save his people, the one that you call upon, is none other but Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now Peter is telling people here as, as they're sitting there and they're looking at what the, the chaos of what's happening, people te- talking in different languages, Peter starts to unpack what it means for God to, to work out salvation through this Jesus of Nazareth. In verse twenty two he goes on, he said. He says this, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. So he's saying, hey, Jesus came here and he was doing crazy stuff that nobody else could, did, could do and you saw it with your own eyes. Jesus did these in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan." and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless man. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter's saying to these folks, like, and, and just know, that these guys, Like, we're told that these are devout Jews, people, and, and proselytes, people who have come from different ethnicities, different, and, and they've come to know the God of the Bible, they've come to know who Yahweh is, they've, they have some sort of devotion to this God. And so, Peter says to them, this Jesus who came and, and fulfilled all of the prophecies to the scriptures that you devote yourselves to, you, you killed him. He doesn't pull any punches here. It's like literally, Jewish people, you are responsible for killing the one who came to try to save you. And thankfully, this didn't frustrate God's plan. It was according to God's plan, his foreknowledge that this happened. While these men, these lawless men, were trying to snuff out this Jesus, while they're trying to smolder the little flame that he had going on, God was lighting a wildfire. See, that's, that's like the flames upon their heads, like this is the wildfire. This is the outbreak. This is the, the fire that can't be contained. God was lighting a wildfire. This is what the whole commotion is about. The Spirit comes in power, and enables, empowers these people to do the work of the ministry that God has called them to and it's causing all of this commotion. This is what it's all about. The Holy Spirit has arrived. There's this power in God's people now, the power of Christ and, and Peter goes through and, and he starts unpacking more and more, go, quoting David, and he unpacks th- this prophecy of David, and, and then he goes and he concludes his sermon here in verse 36. I, I, I don't have time to unpack all this all. There's like three dozen sermons in this passage alone. But verse 36, he says, he, he gets, concludes his whole sermon and says, let all of the house Israel, of Israel know, therefore, for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ who you've crucified. Now, the original audience here, like for us in the 21st century, sitting back in, 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 you know, in Illinois, Iowa, wherever you live, Lord and Christ aren't necessarily titles that really like spark a lot of longing. Like, because we're encultured in, in a different type of culture. So these people who are part of the Jewish tradition, they grew up hearing these stories about the Lord, right? The Lord, the king, the one who rules and reigns all things under his good and perfect rule. They grew up hearing about the, this Messiah, right? The, um, Christ is the Greek word, I lost the word for a second. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one. Right, this one who would rise up and deliver God's people from every struggle that they have. And so going on in the back of their minds, these are categories of, of Lord and Christ that these people had a longing for. So let us step into this a little bit and unpack what this means. What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord and Christ? Now these are not surnames, right? We call Jesus Jesus Christ the Lord. That's not a surname. That's not a bonus name that Jesus picked up somewhere along the way. Like not a great nickname. These are titles and distinct roles that the Israelites, God's people, had grown up longing for. And, and both of these indicate both power and authority, right? Jesus Christ, the Lord, the King, has this great power, this authority, the ability to fight against an enemy, but also to be Christ means that he has this kind of compassion. He, the anointed one stoops down to lift up those who are downcast, who are in the muck and mire and bring them out of the pit of distress. Distress. And so we see Jesus wedding both of these categories together, both Christ and Lord, of, of King and Savior. Now the promise of the Christ, of the anointed one, goes all the way back to Genesis chapter three. Now if you're familiar with your Bible at all, you know in the beginning God created earth, everything in it. It was beautiful, it was glorious, it was flourishing. It, like, the way that God created the world was meant to move and up into the right trajectory. Always improving, always becoming more glorious, never a setback, just, just the glory of God sort of being demonstrated through the created world. That's what it was meant to be like. But by Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are deceived by the enemy. Satan takes the form of a serpent, moves and tempts Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The one tree in the garden that God said, hey, don't eat that. If you do it, surely you'll die. Yet they do it anyway. And when they do it, creation takes a devastating blow. In fact, in that moment, creation starts moving down this downward spiral. Adam's work of tending the ground and seeing to its flourishing now becomes laborious. It's by the sweat on his brow that he's gotta do. He's gotta strive. There's gonna be famine and natural disasters that come. Eve, as she carries children and brings them to life, the child rearing will be painful. And then you see the brokenness of, of the created world, of relationships. Adam and Eve start blaming each other. Then they start blaming God. They're mad at God. They hide from God. See, the relationship that they were made, meant to have with God is now fractured instead of going to God in the cool of the day because they used to take walks in the cool of the day with, with God. Now they run and hide. They're afraid. They're ashamed. And in the garden, in the midst of their sin and brokenness and just the, the, the awful thing that they set in motion here at the fall, God says to Eve, listen, I am going to send someone from your line who will crush the enemy, right? There will be a snake crusher who comes and he will crush him underneath of his heel and this anointed one, this Messiah, this savior will come and he will save God's people from this sin. He'll save them and restore all things back to the way they were meant to be. See, this is the promise of the Messiah, the anointed one, to come to right the wrongs. Now, as Peter's talking about this message of salvation, right, this this saving message, we have to ask the question, what exactly is Jesus saving us from? Now, the basic answer here is sin. Ultimately, Jesus saves people from sin. We see that, right, there's this question of what should we do now? Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now when we bring up the topic of sin, our culture tends to like roll their eyes at this Like, oh gosh, here church people go talking about sin again. Always these Debbie Downers talking about sin. And and what happens is they get sort of numb or, or they start brushing off this language about sin. In fact, in some ways, we've seen this topic, this language of sin be hijacked and it becomes a sort of marketing strategy. It's like things are sinfully naughty, sinfully delicious, right? And we sort of pull it and we normalize it in our culture. It's okay, sin's a cool thing. We can tolerate it. We don't need to get our undies in a bundle about sin. Everybody's a sinner. What's the big idea? Or you know, what's the big big deal about that? It's just part of the human condition. But the Bible actually tells us that sin wasn't meant to be the human condition. Sin is the fallen condition of our humanity, but it wasn't meant to be a defining characteristic of the human condition. You see, actually, at its core, sin is anti-human. Sin is inhumane, it's anti-God, it it is destructive, it unravels God's design for our world, it frustrates our lives, our relationships, the, the relationship that we have with this world, it takes power and corrupts it, it brings sickness and famine and disease and all of these, it just brings utter chaos upon God's creation. Now, archery terms, sin is an archery term. In fact, this is where it comes from, this idea to miss the mark. So when we say, hey, we're sinners, or, or there's sin, it means that we've missed the mark. We've, the bullseye has been drawn, and we've missed far right. Francis Spuford says, it's not just a matter of missing the mark, like, oh, I'll try again. But it's, sin is the human propensity to screw things up. Like our default tendency because we're in sin is only to lead us to mess things up and frustrate God's design for the world. And thus creation, if, if it perpetuates in sin, not only does it unravel, but it continues unraveling. It gets worse and worse and worse, brings calamity and chaos upon God's people. But it's not just that we're innocent bystanders to sin. Like it's not just sin passively happens to us and it frustrates us, and sin makes our life complicated. Actually, we are complicit in sin. That when we are born, we are born sinners with this heart of rebellion in us. We insist on doing things our own way. We hear things from Scripture that tell us, hey, this is God's design," and say, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." Let me try it a different way first. We push away from a relationship with God as our creator, with other people, and by doing so, we, we live this subhuman life. In fact, beneath every human problem, every societal ill is the problem of sin. And just because everyone is a sinner doesn't mean that we ought to ignore it. It'd make as much sense as like a doctor standing in a hospital and says, well, everybody's sick here, I'm just gonna go home for the day. It doesn't make, like, just because everybody has the, the disease doesn't mean we just say, ah, it is what it is. See, sin is the real pandemic. It infests our desires, our minds, our hearts, our motives. It totally corrupts us. In fact, the psalmist says, like, above all things, my heart is deceitful. My heart has been marred by sin so totally that I can't even understand my own heart. And So we see here, okay, not only do we live in a world where sin is present, but I'm, I'm also complicit in sin. There's another layer to the salvation. When Jesus says, look, I'm taking the punishment for you. In the Garden of Eden, God said, Eat of this tree, and surely you will die. Paul tells us in Romans the wages of sin is death, right? If you sin, sin will cost you any everything. Like you cannot afford to sin. And this is one of the reasons why Christians sing Jesus paid it all. That Jesus, He went to the cross, He bore the punishment for our sin. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, He who knew no sin became sin. The sin of all humanity was placed on him so that we might become the righteousness of God. See, on the cross, there, God poured out his wrath on Jesus, condemning sin in the flesh. He punished sin. The punishment of sin was fully executed on Jesus. And we see this in the physical agony of Jesus. Even before he gets to the cross, he's sweating drops of blood. He gets there and his body is torn apart. He's stabbed, he's whipped, he's beaten, he's mocked, the humiliation, but the the physical agony of the crucifixion is only the tip of the iceberg. The real punishment of the crucifixion was when the Father turned his face away. See, from eternity past, Jesus had enjoyed communion with both the Heavenly Father and the Holy Spirit. Together forever, they've enjoyed each other, they had this beautiful union. Three in one, a joyful dance of the Trinity. C.S. Lewis talks about that. And then here on the cross, God the Father turns his face away from Jesus as his wrath, the whole cup of wrath is poured out upon Jesus. Now, you know the pain of losing someone. The longer you're connected with someone, the more meaningful that relationship is, right? If you have a goldfish for a day and you lose that goldfish, flush it, get a new one, it'll be fine. But if you have a dog that's been with you for 20 years, and you lose that, right, that's a painful experience. The length of time gives a gravity to the weight of the loss. Same true with a widow or a widower. The length of the marriage intensifies the grief of that loss. Jesus had eternal relationship with the Father, and in that moment, it was all taken away. The crushing blow of that is really what put Jesus, see, Jesus didn't need the cross, people. Jesus didn't, his body didn't have to get beat up like that. See, it would have been enough, it would have been sufficient for the Father just to turn his face from him, and that that spiritual death would have been enough to put Jesus in his grave. But the crucifixion shows us the gruesome reality of sin. And Jesus is dead both physically and spiritually as he sits beneath the wrath of God. Now, If Jesus were to have remained dead, if God poured out his wrath and Jesus was still in the grave and he never got up from it, then it would mean that there was still a debt to pay. It would mean that there's still something for us, some of our sin, that we're gonna have to give an answer for it and God is gonna expect it. Maybe it's gonna cost us our life and we're gonna have to pay that debt. That Jesus wasn't sufficient enough. But because God has raised, raised Jesus from the dead, it shows us that Jesus paid the debt in full. The, the wrath of God was satisfied. In fact, verse 24, he says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Death had no claim upon Jesus, because he paid it all in full. The punishment was paid. The jaws of death were broken. And so we see Jesus delivering people the salvation it is a deliverance from the punishment of sin and then we see the power of sin because the, 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 the pangs of death couldn't keep it, it was broken. The, sin isn't just a moral blunder, it's not just a mishap. Sin is a dark power that exercises its control over all of us in a profound way. It's, if we were in in Harry Potter world, it's the hex of dark magic, it darkens our minds, it darkens our hearts, it blinds us to God's goodness. And there's two ways that it works. It works from the outside and it works from the inside. Now, we see this when Peter talks about the lawless men, that there are men who are doing lawless things. That evil was in their hearts and from their evil hearts comes evil actions. They, they actually killed the one guy who lived the perfect life. And in that moment, they were controlled by evil. Their corrupt hearts and minds were driving them to do such a heinous act. But then there's also this external power that we see at play. Not just the evil in me, but the evil outside that's influencing over me. You see this in, in verse 40. And Paul says, with many other or Peter says, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. See, Peter is saying there is a power at play in this world, the power of darkness, an evil power. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 6, the powers and principalities of the world, dark spiritual forces that are pulling us away from God. Now, some of them are subtle, some of them are very obvious, and either one is effective. Peter is saying here that Jesus is providing a way out. He's defeating, he's rendering the power of sin useless by defeating the power of sin inside of us and outside from the world. Jesus saves people from the power of sin not by just escaping from those powers, but destroying those powers. Romans chapter one says the gospel is the power of God for salvation the power of God that's a key phrase it's the dynamos It's, it's the dynamite it's the raw power it's an explosive power It bursts the light of God in the center of darkness and pushes back all of the darkness that sin has brought with us. It's a cosmic collision of the forces of good and evil and good prevails. That's what John talks about in the beginning of, of his gospel, that in him was the light. The light overcame the darkness. The darkness could not overcome him. Paul talks about this again in Colossians chapter one where Jesus disarms the rulers and powers and he puts them to shame on the cross. So all of these powers that are at play, Jesus shows, "Let let me show you an even greater power. I will defeat you. I will neutralize you. I will eradicate these powers. I will pull you out of sin's gravitational pull. You see, what the cross was meant to do was to humiliate Jesus, to get his disciples to shut up and go away and just become nobodies. But Jesus took the shame of the cross and he flipped it. See, what was meant to be shameful to Jesus shamed the sin and the darkness and the evil of Satan in the world. So we see here, Jesus is saving people from the penalty and the power of sin and one day he will eliminate sin in its entirety. One day there will be a day when sin is no more. It's vanquished forever. Not even a lingering thought of it. Everything sad will be coming true. We see this here when, when David is talking back in verse 35 when he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. See, Jesus is currently up in heaven. He's ruling and he's reigning and one day he will come back and cut the enemy at their knees. No longer will it stand. His enemies will become the footstool. And so we know that there's an expiration date on evil. The book of Revelation testifies this. Sin will be obliterated vanquished from this earth and and in its absence, in the absence of sin, holiness, goodness, light, truth will prevail. See, this is the the ingredients for human flourishing. This is the context, This this is what the environment of the Garden of Eden was meant to be like, this joy, this satisfaction, this freedom that people have in the gospel. Now as God is working his way through the Old Testament and the story, what he's calling his people into being is to be a society like that, right? To set up just and charitable laws, to be generous and compassionate people, to be loving and and gracious towards one another. And God relied on good kings like David and Solomon to sort of pioneer, to lead his people in this way, to, to be a kingdom, to be the city of light, the city on a hill to be the salt and light of the earth. But if you read through the Old Testament, God's people fail at this more than they succeed. In fact, you could say it's an epic failure. For every, every one good king, there's probably six bad kings that lead God's people astray, back into the trend of the world or deeper into sin. And, and so there's a certain point, in, even in this minute, when Jesus and Peter is preaching this gospel, Israel looks a lot like all of the other godless societies that surrounds them. But this is where Jesus steps in, not just as the Christ, not just as the Messiah who saves his people, but as the true king, the only one who can step in and take the the. the title the office of lord jesus steps in as the head of god's people to lead them in god's ways to do something that no other human king was capable of doing and doing so jesus leads his people into the kingdom of god and we see the authority of the power of jesus displayed as as light pushes back the darkness we see this as miracles Right, all of these mighty deeds that the disciples are proclaiming about, Jesus pushing back darkness. Yeah, there was the resurrection which set off this whole new thing. But Jesus was bringing the kingdom of God here and now, and it's available, it's real, it's actualized wherever the, the, the lordship of Jesus is acknowledged. Now one day, it will be here in its fullness. One day, the earth will reflect the glory it'll all just sing the praises of Jesus but anywhere right now where hearts say Jesus I see you as my savior and my lord there is where the kingdom of heaven is and so as Peter says this like Jesus Christ he's this lord he's the Christ that's that's the context of these titles that's what makes people go whoa They see the fulfillment of what God has been promising his people for years and years and years, decades and centuries. They see in this moment that all of the things that scripture is pointing to is actually Jesus and we just killed him a few days ago. And in that moment, here's their response. Verse 37, they were cut to the heart. When they heard this, when they heard the message that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? See, there's an urgency in their voice, what do we do? What should we do? And Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his words were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. See, when the people heard this message of salvation, they were cut to the heart. It wasn't just this intellectual thing of like, oh yeah, I see how the pieces connect. They realized that this sin was a more profound problem; it was more real to them than they even knew. And Jesus did something about it. They were, became a real uh, aware of their condition, aware of their need for a savior, aware of their need for a new king, and their longing for the kingdom of God. And they found it met in Jesus. And so they say to the apostles, "What do we do?" What shall we do now? I think it's really easy for. I think that there's probably a lot of um, there's a sincerity in this question, but there's a way that this can also get skewed, because as we hear the gospel message, it's not just something we receive. It's something that okay, now I have to do something. So it's like it's it's more of good advice. Here's twelve steps. Here's five ways to be a better human being. Here's what you got to do now, and then here's the next step. That's not the message that Peter is presenting to them. It's not good advice. The message that Peter is giving is good news. It's hard news. It's not about what you do, it's about what's been done, and he points that it's all been finished. Jesus finished on the cross, he said, it is finished. He paid it all. Sin was conquered, the enemy was defeated. Sin was dealt with once and for all and the wrath of God was satisfied and the way that you access that isn't by squaring your shoulders with God. It's not by pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. The way you get access to this is by collapsing on the mercy of God. It's by realizing there's nothing that I can do to make myself more presentable. There's no way that it can posture or pretend so that I become more desirable to God. What the realization is that I am a sinner And there's no hope for me aside from the work of Jesus. And so what do you do? I receive the gift of grace. Ephesians chapter two talks about this. For it is by grace you have been saved, not of yourself, not of your own doing. It's a work of Jesus. And so we gain access to this message of the gospel by faith. That's why you see them saying, and they heard this message, they received his word and were baptized. The only prerequisite to coming to Jesus is to acknowledge your need of him, to turn to him and to receive this good news that Jesus had stood in your place. Not did he just stand in your place, but he gives you his place. He calls you righteous. He he takes away your sin and gives you his own righteousness. See, this is the good news of the gospel. Paul says this is trustworthy, we heard this this morning, and worthy of full acceptance that God saves sinners. That's the only kind of people who God saves. He doesn't save people who got their stuff together and you know, I'm overall a pretty good person. He saves sinners. People who come face to face with the reality, with the the problem of sin, not just as an external thing, but an internal thing in my own heart. And he deals with it as both Lord and Christ. See, this is the promise of God, that God will make a way for his people, even if it means he has to do all of the legwork. And that's what the gospel is. Here's who gets the gospel. It's, it's for he, he, Peter's talking to devout followers, people who have been proselytized, who have been brought to the Jewish faith, and they're hearing this, and they're, they're cut to the heart. He's like, hey, the gospel's for you. But it's not just for you and the people who've got your foot in the door with God. It's for people who are far off, people who God is calling to himself. And that day, 3,000 people get saved. That day, 3,000 people are woken up to the reality of their sinfulness, their need, and how God has filled that need in Christ Jesus. And we look at this and say, oh my gosh, that would've been so crazy to be there. And yeah, it would've been crazy to be there. But God hasn't stopped doing that. God hasn't stopped calling people to himself. Even in this city, there are people who belong to God, who is calling to himself, that the message of the gospel is just as relevant as ever. People who are searching for meaning, for for a a solution to their deepest problems. God says, I have good news for you. And Jesus is standing there eager to receive sinners, all of your failures, all of your rejection, your downcast, Jesus has open arms to meet those. And as he takes you in, he gives you a new story. He gives you a new life. He gives you a happy ending. He gives you the gateway to human flourishing. When, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, hey, what, what must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says, you gotta be born again. How do you get born again? How do you crawl up back into your mother's womb? No, Jesus says, listen, it's a spiritual birth. And that's what baptism is about. It points to this spiritual rebirth that takes place. Where you actually become a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. The gospel has woken you up. And this new life begins with baptism. See, that's the turning point. You hear the message, you receive the message, and how do we know if you've received it? Are you ready to follow Jesus? Are you ready to take that next step and be baptized? Whether you're near to God, you've been in the church your whole life, you've been running far away from God, Jesus has open arms to receive you. Now, I'm praying that the Lord continues to cut people to the heart like we see here. That we'd be convicted of our sin, of righteousness, uh, righteousness, of judgment. That we would be pinned against the wall and realize that our only hope is Jesus. And if there's somebody in the room today who's coming to that realization, maybe for the first time, that's ready to say, I see the gospel, I see what Jesus has done to save me from the problem of my sin, to put me on a new trajectory, and you're ready to take that, that next step, I want to invite you to be baptized today, right today. I've been praying all week, I've been sitting in this text and saying, God, would you please do this again, that, would you cut to the heart, would you convict people of sin, would you Show them the gospel in new ways where they want to give their lives to Jesus. And so we've made preparations for you that if this is the case, if this is you, we want you to take that next step. There, in this back room here, I've got water in the baptism take. I've got shorts and t-shirts. You can change, you can baptize today. After the sermon, I'm gonna go stand in the back if that's you, let's talk. I don't know, maybe the Lord baptized somebody. But we've made these preparations these preparations so that if you are ready, you can receive the gospel and come to the waters of forgiveness. And for those of you who have been baptized, those of you who are in Christ, remember your baptism. You're no longer defined by your sin, you're no longer defined by your failures, but defined by the grace of Jesus. That is who you are, that's why Paul says, by the grace of God, I am who I am. I've been made new that through the power of Christ, you have been raised with Christ. And as the Holy Spirit is living in you, you have this power to live a new life unto Christ. And so one of the reasons why at Sacred City we'll never move past the gospel, we'll never say, okay, this is, this, these are the ABCs of the Christian life. In fact, the gospel is the A through Zs of the gospel is because there's never a moment in your life where the gospel becomes irrelevant. There's never a moment in your life where I think I've got enough uh, resume of being a good Christian person that I can just sort of, you know, put that on the back shelf for a minute. In fact, Paul shows up to the Galatians and says, Galatians, what are you guys doing? Why have you left the gospel? What has bewitched you? Why have you departed from the message that actually saved you? Do you not believe that it won't sanctify? So the gospel that saves is also the gospel that sanctifies. Christian, it's the gospel that helps move you deeper and deeper into this identity in Christ. In fact, as we come up into the the season, we're gonna go through the, um, the sermon series in Ephesians. That's what it's all about. It's identity formation. It's pushing you deeper and deeper into your identity in Christ. And so Christian, remember your baptism. Repent for your sins. Turn to Jesus. Realize that the Spirit of God is living in you and this power that drives you forward into the likeness of Christ. And as we see the robust gift, the glory of God's grace, let us not hold our tongues, but have our tongues loosed like we see here in the book of Acts to proclaim of God's marvelous wonders. Not that we would just, see there's a difference in having a biography of a life story and a testimony. If Jesus has stepped in your life, you no longer have a biography, you have a testimony of the mighty works that God has done. Let us never stop proclaiming God's powerful work in Christ Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you For your mercy. We thank you that it's by grace alone we are saved, that you have delivered us from the power of sin, the punishment of sin. And one day you will totally eradicate sin and they will no longer have any presence here in our life. God, we want to know you. We want to know a God who does this for undeserving people like me. We want to grow to be like Christ, so help us, give us your spirit. Remind us of the gospel more and more. Solidify our identity there as beloved children who are brought into the family. And let us see your power move day in and day out, bringing new people to the family, for them to to believe and be baptized, but also for Christians just to believe and live a life of faith and repentance. For our good and for your glory, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.